Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. All right, here we go. What you think about. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. If you enjoyed our opening music, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dor, and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We want to raise all voices, big and small, around the world from those diagnosed to those that care and serve them, to advocates, researchers, and more. And today is a live show, so you can join the conversation by calling in at 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. And we are going to be learning today about dementia dialogues and the Alzheimer's disease registry which I think are going to be just uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, resources and great information for you to have. But before I introduce our guests, I always like to do a couple of shout-outs. So uh, one, I want to do a shout-out to Emerald Crest Memory Care, which is a ministry of Cassia. And actually, we are going to be doing a program this afternoon at 2 p.m. Central, so that's 3 Eastern. And it's called You Can't Know What You Don't Know, and it's about learning simple ways to explore a variety of dementia resources. And you can register by calling Christine Drasher at 952-856-7521. That's 952-856-7521. Or you can email her at christine.drasher, that's Dasher with an R, at CassiaLife.org. Uh, so that'll be a fun, a fun event. I also wanted to give a shout out to the uh, Project CARE. They are looking for volunteers who are currently um, dementia family caregivers for an important research study on emotions and caregivers' health. And you can uh, call them to get more information at 832 832- Eight one nine four two nine seven. That's eight three two eight one nine four two nine seven. I also want to shout out to the Memory Cafe directory. Uh, you can uh, explore that site by going to memorycafedirectory.com. Find out which ones are now starting in person uh, memory cafes again and which ones are virtual. Uh, To find the virtual ones, you go to the Cafe Connect link there. And I just want to let people know I'm still doing Arthur's Memory Cafe the second and fourth Wednesday of each month. 
at 1 o'clock Central, so that's 2 o'clock Eastern, and we are still virtual at this point. Um, also want to thank Coral Health, that's C-O-R-O-Health.com dot com for allowing people to continue to download two of their apps, Music First and Coral Faith, during the pandemic. And um, I wanted to just let people know a couple of shows that are coming up as well here on Alzheimer's Speaks. On Saturday, we are talking with um, a Japanese entrepreneur. Uh, he's going to be talking about their care culture over there and care farms. On Tuesday, we're going to have Dr. Cullen with the Virtual Brain Health Group on. And then on Wednesday, we have Dr. Fry, um, who is um, just a fantastic researcher here in Minnesota who did the um, nasal insulin um, uh, trials, which are happening all over the world now. And then on the 29th, which will be uh, Thursday, I'm going to have actually uh, Emerald Crest on, and they're going to be talking about their organization and their plan for dementia care and how they care. Uh, last, I want to give a shout out to Dementia Map, which is our global resource directory, which is growing each and every day. I'm so excited about that. You can check that out by going to DementiaMap.com. And on the right-hand side, there's a button that you can click on if you'd like a tour, and I will personally give you a tour. Now, we're going to hear from the Foot Bar Walker, and we will be right back. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The foot bar walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the foot bar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The foot bar walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's the thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the footbar walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the footbar walker. Well, welcome back. It's time to introduce you to our guest today. So first I want to introduce Megan Byers. Uh, she is a social worker who has developed policies and training curriculum, uh, monitored legislative sessions to determine their impact on vulnerable adults, and also um, educate stakeholders on issues of adult maltreatment and dementia. So welcome, Megan. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Well, I'm thrilled to have you with. I also want to introduce your sidekick, uh, Maggie Miller. She is a research assistant professor at the Department of I can't say the word now. All of a sudden, I'm going to trip on my words. Um, Epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of South Carolina, and she manages the South Carolina's uh, Alzheimer's Disease Registry. Dr. Miller's research um, and interests include individuals with Alzheimer's disease and their caregivers along with 
healthy aging as a whole and program evaluation. So welcome, Dr. Miller. How are you doing today? Hi, Laurie. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I am excited to have you both here. Uh, the topics that we're going to be talking about today, again, are the Dementia Dialogues, which is a training program, and then the Alzheimer's Disease Registry. And again, you who are listening can feel free to call in at 323-870-4602. Now, before we get started with my line of questioning, I would like to ask my guests if they've been touched personally by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. So, um, Dr. Miller, do you want to go ahead and take that question first? Sure, yes, I can. Um, yes, I have definitely been touched personally by uh, dementia. Um, my grandfather and I were, were very, very close. Uh, he didn't miss, I mean, one of my life events growing up, whether it be sports, school, or anything family-related. Re- um, he was, uh, how can I say this, um, Strong-willed and very prideful Italian man, but he had a, he had sure had a heart of gold. Um, after we lost my grandmother, and he reached about his late 70s, the family started noticing signs that he was becoming more withdrawn and sometimes forgetful. Uh, I think the family was in denial for a long time, which I think most families are. Um, he was still living independently, and my mom would call him every morning and evening. And she worked right down the street from his house, so she would stop by and visit him multiple times a week, bringing him food and having a conversation. And he loved Nutella, so she would always bring him Nutella as, as like, a special treat. Um, I do remember, though, uh, one time my mom was visiting me out of town, and he called her, I mean, it must have been 10 or 15 times in a row, to ask if she mailed a check for his car registration. And at first we kind of chuckled, ha, 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 because the phone was ringing, you know, nonstop. And then I think after maybe the 10th call, she looked up, to, look at, up at me, um, and she had some kind of, like, watery eyes. And she said, Mag, I think something's very wrong with your pop-up. And that's when we kind of realized that it was, it was dementia. Um, and that's when we kind of had to face the reality and make plans for the future the family really came together, and my mom and her brothers took turns uh, continuing to care for him so he could stay in his home. I remember, you know, overhearing so many conversations about how to hide the keys or, you know, how to how to rig up the car so, you know, we could stop him from driving because his truck was his pride and joy. Um, he ended up passing away a few years later, and he left a huge mark on my heart and uh, showed me firsthand the caregiver's perspective of the everyday difficulties of caring for someone with dementia. And um, it's really actually served as inspiration for my career, you know, to this day. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Megan, how about you? I am proud to say uh, I am actually very lucky in terms I have not personally been impacted um, with friends or family who have had dementia but I have a lot of professional experience and being a direct care um, in the field, social worker, all the way through the legislative process to program implementation. So I'm very lucky, like I said, to not have that um, personal connection, but professionally I have seen various types and various degrees of dementia. Okay, great. Well, thank you, ladies, for sharing uh, your your history with us on that. It's always uh, fascinating to me to find out how people get into this field and 
uh, how it ties in. Um, Megan, let's start with you. Why don't you tell our audience what Dementia Dialogues is all about? How did it get started, and, and what is it? Yeah, so Dementia Dialogues is a five-module, evidence-informed, nationally registered training course, and it's designed to educate community members and caregivers, both formal and informal, for persons who exhibit signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. The program is presented by certified Dementia Dialogues instructors across the United States, and most importantly, it is free of charge no matter where you are for all participants. <clears throat> That's fantastic. Free is always is always good. Um, can you give us a little more breakdown in terms of what they can expect in those different modules and how long they uh, are, all those types of things? Of course. Yeah, so the first module is what I refer to the meat and potatoes of the program. It is the most intense and content heavy because um, it's kind of providing that foundation of what Alzheimer's disease is, but also what dementia is. So module one specifically defines dementia and the different types of dementia, and, and it identifies the um, statistics of the disease around the world in the United States, but we also break it down into our states um, as well. The module one also reviews warning signs of dementia, reviews uh, risk factors for developing the disease, treatment options, and highlights expected changes as the disease progresses over time. Module two is, oh, I forgot to say, module one's about two hours long. Module two is all about communication. So we discuss the importance of effective communication between care partnerships, and it, and it identifies barriers to communication as the disease progresses and communication strategies to overcome those barriers. So we talk about um, the barriers to expect, but also some strategies how to over, overcome those. And that one is about an hour long. Module three is all about the environment. So specifically, we discuss environmental barriers for a person living with dementia and how to make the environment safe, as well as providing strategies for successful activity, activities of daily living. So this can be applicable to a person who is aging in place, um, whether it be their own home, a family home, or even within a facility. Um, all of the tips we recommend um, through evidence-based and evidence-informed research um, can be applied to both. And Module 3 is also about an hour long. Module 4 is all about addressing challenging behaviors. So first and foremost, we define what a behavior is, and then we discuss what a challenging behavior is um, for caregivers and those um, persons living with dementia. Um, and once we discuss some challenges to expect as the disease progresses, we also um, talk about some techniques for overcoming those behaviors for our caregivers. And that module is also about an hour long. Then the last module is all about creative problem solving. Uh, the module focuses on developing a care team and problem solving techniques for caregivers to provide care to persons living with dementia. The module also reviews caregiver stress identifies national resources and warning signs of adult maltreatment, 
which is abuse, neglect, or financial exploitation, and how to locate individual state reporting statutes and reporting procedures because um, adult maltreatment is defined differently state to state, and there are different eligibility criteria state to state as well. And that module is also about an hour long um, just to provide the content, but I always recommend providing an hour and a half for modules two through five so we have some extra time to discuss with participants any concerns in particular that they have and anything that they have learned or come across and need some more clarification. Wonderful. Well, that's a, that's a lot of information for people and just critical categories, too, the way you've broken that down. Um, how can a person participate in the training, um, one, and then second, I'll ask you about becoming a certified uh, trainer, how that works as well. Yeah, so anyone uh, can participate in a training. The best way is to contact our office. Um, we have that website. I believe it's underneath online, but just in case, um, the short abbreviation is SPH for School of Public Health, .sc for South Carolina, .edu slash OSA, which is Office for the Study of Aging. You'll see our program there. My complete contact information is there, uh, and we... Well, our aim is to meet our community's needs, um, so trainings are offered in various formats. For example, training may be small or they can be large, they can be private for an, a specific organization or family and friends, or it can be open to the public, meaning anyone may attend, and it's also offered virtually or in person. Um, because Dementia Dialogues is five modules, the delivery method of the program is flexible to meet um, your community needs. So it can be one day a week for five weeks, two days back-to-back, -back, an entire day, or however else the person, group, or community wants or needs. So you would call or email me and we would discuss what is it you need exactly and how can we meet your needs. We're very flexible and we have trainers currently in five different states if you prefer to have a instructor-led, but because we offer virtual, we can meet um, any needs, hopefully, uh, across the United States. Uh, and I briefly mentioned that the program is uh, presented by Certified Dementia Dialogues instructors. Um, so those are volunteers in our various states who have completed a Train the Trainer course and an application. Um, the complete list of requirements and the application is on our website. But to just summarize the process for you, the uh, potential volunteer completes an application and then our office reviews the application and determines if the applicant is a fit to our program. And if the applicant is denied, um, we will follow up with the rationale and document it on the application. Um, but once approved, the applicant must complete a train-the-trainer course, um, and we provide details for that that is also virtual or in-person. And those training topics include a general overview of the program, review of the curriculum, best practices for delivering the material, and expectations. And it is also free of charge. Okay, so to become certified to do this is free of charge. That's that's fantastic as well. Um, so there isn't, they can't like go to the website and just sign up for an online course. It has to be provided through a volunteer then, is that correct? Uh, it can be, we have a self-paced option, which is on our website, 
Um, but if okay. you prefer have the instructor led in person or virtual, um, we have to schedule that because we just schedule them as necessary as community members um, say they are interested, and we try to meet their needs as much as possible. Um, right now, we don't have a web-based portal where you can just register for a training or search for a training, um, but our goal is to get there, but right now, um, all of that is going to be through our office to get a training scheduled. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that's fantastic. So, again, you can uh, find out more about Dementia Dialogues um, right on the, the uh, radio page there. We have uh, both the email address, the website. We have a link straight to Dementia Dialogues as well as to the Alzheimer's Disease Registry, which we're going to talk about next. So thank you so much, Megan. That was really helpful and um, very exciting to hear. People are always looking for information. So wonderful. Uh, I appreciate all the work that you're doing in coordinating this and, and helping families and businesses as well. So um, again, thank you for your time on that. Um, now, Dr. Miller, I want to talk to you um, <clears throat> and ask you, if you can tell us what exactly the Alzheimer's Registry is. So uh, the South Carolina Alzheimer's Disease Registry is a unique resource for state surveillance and research. Um, and it's used as an asset for community planning in both health and social services. Um, the registry identifies new cases of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias on an annual basis. And we rely on physician diagnosis as coded in the patient's medical record. We were founded in 1988, so this is our 33rd anniversary. Um, in the registry, when we talk about Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, um, the term related dementias refers to dementias associated with vascular disease, mixed dementia, and other medical conditions such as uh, Parkinson's disease. So um, we are one of only three population-based state registries in the U.S., and we are the oldest of the three. There are two other registries that we are aware of. Um, there is one in West Virginia and one in Georgia. But at this point in time, there are only three in the nation. So a quality that makes our registry unique is its legislation. In 1990, the governor signed a law authorizing the establishment of a voluntary statewide Alzheimer's disease registry. The law has strict confidentiality requirement, requirements um, because confidentiality is of the utmost importance. Um, but it does allow registry staff to contact families and physicians of persons diagnosed with ADRD uh, to cl collect more in-depth data, like information related to the progression and treatment of the, of the disease, service utilization, and caregiver characteristics. So our registry does have some uh, four main goals. Um, our first is to provide disease prevalence estimates to advise and enable better planning for healthcare providers, patients, and decision makers in social and medical services. Uh, we seek to identify differences in disease prevalence among demographic groups. So we investigate uh, Alzheimer's by race, age, and gender. Um, we also seek to help formal and informal caregivers who provide care for individuals with Alzheimer's disease. And we seek to foster research into risk factors for Alzheimer's. So our registry is a very rich data source. Um, we use data from a wide variety of sources to capture as many diagnoses as possible. 
Uh, we collect data from hospital records, emergency room visits, Medicaid claims data, uh, our local Department of Mental Health, Home Health, Vital Records, the State Health Plan, Community Mental Health Centers, Mental Health and Rehabilitation Clinics, and Community Long-Term Care data. So all of these data sources are combined um, in our South Carolina Data Warehouse, which is a state-based data warehouse. And here they are stripped of any identifying information and are given a unique identifier. And then any duplicate records are removed, and the result is our registry. Wow, so that's, a, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of information that you're collecting from so many different variables. That's absolutely fantastic. So I'm going to let yeah. you continue because I kind of popped in there, but um, I was oh, just sure, really impressed sure, no with, yes. with how it much. Is a very, uh, yeah, it's a very, very large uh, data set that we work with. So um, to be included in the registry, individuals must have a diagnosis of ADRD. The physician's diagnosis is collected from individuals' medical records, and we use ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes. An individual is then classified into four general categories for our reporting purposes, and those include Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, and mixed dementia. And then we have those classified with dementia in other medical conditions, uh, which are other diagnoses distinct from Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. And those include, but aren't necessarily limited to, alcohol dementia, Parkinson's disease, and dementia with Lewy bodies. So um, our registry contains information related to diagnosis, such as types of dementia, and data source in which they were identified. So either through the hospital, emergency room, those sources I listed earlier. We also have demographic data, uh, which includes age, race, gender, and whether they're currently living or have passed away. Uh, we also have information on location. So this is where the case was residing at their time of diagnosis. So that's either in the home, community, or a nursing facility, and location within the state. So we have information about their county and zip code. So question with location, is there, um, is there a way at any point to update that if they move from their original location, um, just so you, so um, data is updated on that, or is that just not possible? Is that just too complicated to do? Well, we do have, our registry is updated every year, so we do have up-to-date information. The, um, the information we capture, though, is the location where they were first diagnosed. So that location won't change. But um, if they, they are seen by a doctor or they go to the hospital and they have a change in address, we will have that change updated on a yearly basis. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And, uh, you know, have you, what kind of response have you had from people? Do they know they're being captured in this? Is this something that they give permission to, or is this just kind of an automatic uh, share that has happened? Yeah. Um, with, with our legislation, it is an automatic process. So these records are collected, um, you know, at all of the different data sources, and they're housed within the data warehouse, so we're able to access that data. Um, now, in terms of the interest of the community, 
Uh, Megan and I have been to different uh, health fairs and, and you know, uh, community events, and I'm telling you, people will walk up to us and say, how can I get in this registry? <laughs> so there's mm-hmm. actually a lot of interest in actually being part of the registry. Um, and basically I say, well, if you've been to your doctor, um, you'll, you know, you're most likely will be in the registry. So um, that information is, is collected, you know, on a yearly basis. Okay. Now, is this shared, like, with police officers at all? I'm just thinking for, for calls, you know, a lot of the um, 911s are allowing in the various states allow people to call in and register somebody. So if there's an emergency call to the house, uh, police know. Is, is that information shared with them at all, or, or is that kind of out of, uh, out of the realm? Yeah, it's that a little bit out of the room only because of our strict confidentiality. Um, we do not have name. Um, we don't have anything like that to be able to report to um, the police. Uh, now, that could be another option, though, um, you know, as a separate source, if we could get permission to be able to uh, allow to share information with them through our data warehouse. But currently, there's, there's really nothing set up um, in that regard. But that is an important, important area. Yeah, that would be, um, you know, if that could be done, I think that would be really, really helpful for families and police officers as well uh, when they're mm-hmm. when they're going out because a lot of times they're just blindsided um, and don't know what's happening. I, I think of even a, a woman who, you know, arm just got broken by a police officer because she was resistant and didn't understand and they had no idea she had dementia and wasn't able to to uh, comprehend thing that, you know, that just hit the news. And um, yeah, there's just, uh, and, and I understand the need for privacy and it's a, it's a thin mm-hmm. line of balancing that privacy and then yet protecting the community at large and the individuals um, who are diagnosed right. and being able to help them, you know, the best that, the best they can. Have you gotten much interest from other states? regarding, you know, hey, how do we develop something like this? This sounds pretty cool. Uh, Yeah, actually, we've had um, interest both nationally and internationally. Um, We were contacted by Ireland, actually, who was interested in setting up a registry uh, in their country. Um, But, yes, we've we've been contacted by multiple uh, states. The two registries that are currently um, also established uh, we spoke with them in their initial stages, too, in setting up the registry. So um, there's definite interest out there. It's, there's just a lot of difficulty involved in linking the data, getting permissions to access the data, and then also funding available for something that's long-term. Um, sure. That's kind of, yeah, those are kind of the, the main issues that we've seen um, with other states. Okay, and I can I can understand that. Can you tell us with this information? I would imagine that this is used for policy making and you know asking for funds in terms of looking at all of these numbers and figuring out what resources are needed into what locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, um, actually, you know, ADRD represents an ever increasing area of concern for families and the healthcare community. So tracking the disease is important in many, many aspects. Um, And one of the um, major goals of the registry is to release an annual report. And that describes demographic characteristics and medical information for South South Carolinians living with ADRD. Um, And we do that on a yearly basis. So um, 
I can actually share a little bit of our data from our 2020 annual report. Oh, um, wonderful. Yeah, so, so with, with increased reporting and addition of new data sources, the registry is going year after year. Uh, in 2016, which is our most current year of data available, we maintain information on over 106,000 individuals living with Alzheimer's disease and related dementias in South Carolina. So we have a, a large, large number. So this is just individuals living within that year. Um, okay. We do also uh, house the data for individuals that have, that have passed away. So our registry is, is actually upwards of 240,000 individuals currently. Um, so when combined with census data, our registry shows that 11% of South Carolinians aged 65 and older have ADRD and 51% of those 85 and older have the disease. Wow. 63% are, uh, are women, and African-Americans are at a notably higher risk of Alzheimer's diagnosis, being 57% more likely to have ADRD than their white counterparts in South Carolina. Wow. Big numbers. Big numbers that are yeah. really important in order to... Yeah. Um, you know, even out the playing field in terms of services and, and how we care for one another uh, when it comes to dementia. Um, I just find this fascinating. I mean, you know, I'm in Minnesota. I, I wish we had something like this. I think it could be so helpful um, on so many levels. Let me ask you this, uh, and I know that everything is is kept confidentially and yet I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, this would be wonderful for trials to be able to tap into in some ways because I know they struggle with getting to people who are diagnosed as well. Has that ever been? Um, and, again, I, you don't want to hound people and you don't want them to, to feel pressured, but yet I also know that so many families want to help and be part and they just don't know where to start and sometimes going to some of the trial sites is just overwhelming for them, or they don't yes. even know that they exist. And it just seems like this would be a really cool way for um, people to be able to be kind of invited in, um, you know, to know that that even exists or that they could assist um, with that as a whole, if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, uh, one thing that has been a, a recent development in the registry is that, we um, received formal access to um, address and uh, name of individuals who have been seen at a hospital within a hospital system. Now, our legislation did, did uh, allow us permission, but we, ha we were never able to get the formal permission at that level. So just recently, I'd say within the past year or so, we've gotten that permission. And we have done some, uh, we have done our first uh, outreach mailing. So um, at, in the northern part of our state, there is a healthcare system that has a memory health clinic, and they are offering the REACH program, um, which is Resources for Enhancing Alzheimer's Caregiver Health, and it's a wonderful intervention for caregivers. Um, it gives them stress management techniques and um, ways to deal with, you know, different behaviors and uh, allows them to, you know, find out more about services in the area. So what we did is we used our registry to identify individuals who were living in rural areas and who were low income um, because we were getting a lot of people 
referred through the healthcare system that were being seen in the hospital, but were missing mm-hmm. other people that were in other areas of the, the state that were in, you know, the areas of most need. So we were sure. able to do a mailing to them, and we were able to identify people, um, even, you know, Spanish-speaking caregivers, um, to be able to, to have access to this program. So it's, it's been wonderful, and this is, I feel like it's just the beginning right now. Yeah, uh, well, definitely, definitely. I think that that is, I don't think there's enough ways for us to get to people and uh, talk to them about what is available as far as, as resources, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that exists out there. Uh, that That is absolutely fantastic. Um, any um, any stories that you want to share with us about the Alzheimer's Disease Registry and maybe how it has um, helped in terms of policy or uh, just even, even I'm thinking with the doctors even feeling like there's a bigger picture going on in terms of coordinating this information, um, that there might be some feedback on that level as well, because I know that so many of the doctors um, are undereducated in terms of, of not only diagnosis, but giving people support. Do you find that they are um, tapping into your support services a little bit more, like with dementia dialogues and stuff and what you're doing, um, you know, in in North Carolina? I'm sorry, in South Carolina? Uh, Yes, I think that, um, you know, having the registry and having the data available at our fingertips and and open to the public has been very, very helpful. Um, and, you know, as, as, as Megan mentioned, we have our website and we have Dementia Dialogues, which is a free training program, which is fantastic. Um, what, in my experience, a lot of physicians have reached out in terms of trying to answer their own research questions. Mm-hmm. So what they like to do is, you know, they've, you know, seen uh, different things in their practice and then they say, well, we have this data set available, you know, can we, can we do this research? And a lot of times we can because we do have the ability to link to so many different other uh, data sources to get information um, on cases. So, oh, cool. um, yeah, so we have done um, some research in the past that looked at behavioral disturbances in nursing home placement. And um, here our goal was to identify behavioral disturbances in persons with Alzheimer's and caregiver characteristics that were influential on the decision to provide care at home or in a nursing home. So we used the registry to identify um, individuals that were eligible for nursing home care. And we did um, interviews with their caregivers. And uh, we asked them about you know, their lifestyle, stress levels, depression, um, different behavioral disturbances that they were dealing with with their loved one. Um, and what was very interesting is that you know, once we reached out to them, um, the interviewers would sometimes be on the phone with them for an hour or more, you know, and, and the interview is supposed to last a half hour. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, it, you know, caregivers really do, like you had mentioned previously, they really do want to help and yeah. they really do want to find some solutions. And, you know, if we're able to contact, get, get actually get in contact with them because they are very, very busy people, um, they're happy to talk and they're happy to, to disclose and, and provide information to help with these research studies. Um, so what we found is that, um, key individual behavioral disturbances, uh, which include agitation, aggression, disinhibition, and irritability, were um, predictive of nursing home admission, along with having a married or a male caregiver. So those were kind of our outcomes with that study. 
Okay. And then, um, yeah, and and then as a follow-up to that study, we've had um, physicians that are interested in um, exercise science. So they were um, curious about caregivers and their sedentary behavior, so their exercise levels and um, if they're moving, if they're getting any time to themselves to to walk or, or move around. And so what we did is we followed up with the caregivers from this initial study and um, gave them an accelerometer, which is basically an armband that records their steps, activity, sleep, kind of like a, a Fitbit. Mm-hmm. And um, we found that they engaged in high levels of sedentary behavior. And, you know, we know that this can lead to poor health outcomes. So basically now we know that sedentary behavior is a health concern you know, for caregivers in addition to the stress, depression, other health-related issues that they deal with every day. Okay. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, Megan, I'm going to pull you back in and just see um, if you have any stories about um, or comments that people have um, left with you regarding uh, dementia dialogues after going through the courses. Yes, um, we have had positive feedback regarding the program. Uh, Dementia Dialogues has been around um, since the early 2000s, but in July 2019, we did almost a complete rehaul of the program to make it better based off of what current research says and based on our evaluations from participants. So each module has a pre and post survey. Uh, And that's so we can understand what's working well, what's not working well, and an overall evaluation so that, again, we know uh, on a program standpoint where we need to improve the program. Um, And we also have evaluations about the presenter. So if there's a pattern that we notice or a really good feedback about certain instructors, we're very engaged with our participant feedback. Uh, But from that feedback, but also just from people reaching out to me, they really, really appreciate the program. One, because it is so flexible. Two, it's free, which, again, is very rare for these kind of programs. And um, we're able to have that connection with the caregivers. Uh, And, again, that caregiver can be professional or a family member or community member um, to help provide an explanation and hands-on experience of saying, we're not just saying research says this. We've experienced it professionally or personally, and we're able to tell you how and why it works and able to have that dialogue about if this happens, what could happen. Of course, the program, um, we have our instructors are various professions, uh, work at, some are retired, some aren't. So the program, we have to remember that we're volunteers, so we can't necessarily answer specific questions case-by-case questions because we're not that professional at that time, but we can help guide you to professionals who can help further provide clarification for a specific scenario. Um, But we actually were published in the Journal of Applied Gerontology about Dementia Dialogues, and that article um, provides great detail of how we updated the program and what our data actually shows, which is significant. Um, improvement in all modules that is available on our website for free as well. So if anyone's interested in having some in-depth questions and answers, uh, that is available for them. Great. Now, can people get CEUs um, for, you know, if they're a nurse or social worker, things like that, for taking these courses? Yes, it is 
state to state difference because um, we are we apply um, state based for CEUs. Uh, so in Utah. Um, it is approved by the State Board of the National Association of Social Workers, and in South Carolina, we're approved for social work or general continuing education hours um, with our state department. Um, I do review um, different state regulations, and so in North Carolina, we don't necessarily have to get pre-approval, but the program can be approved. Um, it's based on social workers' interest and if it meets their regulations and things like that. Um, so for Specifics, um, participants are able to reach out to me and I can provide some information for them. But in general, yes, continuing education is available. Okay. Well, and I know it, it, it always amazes me because I do training as well how different it is state to state with all of this stuff. It would be so nice if it was, uh, you know, all in line. Um, it make it just so oh, much easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're working, slowly working towards being able to um, – apply at a national level for all states for various fields and various professions. Um, but it's, as you know in your experience, it can be quite expensive. Uh, so mm -hmm. we're, we're slowly working on that. That is one of our ultimate goals is having national approval rather than we have to look at the state specifics and apply for each state. So that is that is our one of our main goals. Yeah. Yeah, well, in, in maybe trainers uh, in particular states will know how to maneuver that process, too, in order to uh, have have those apply as well um, and work with you on that. Because it does get expensive because every state, I mean, you typically have to purchase hours and you don't want to purchase hours that mm -hmm. you aren't going to use and, um, and things there. Uh, but that, that doesn't mean the information is any less valuable um, to professionals as well. Great. Well, anything else oh, that you wanted yeah. to add, Megan? Uh, just one part regarding the CEUs. Um, if we do have, well, whenever new states come on board, we do work very closely with them to help maneuver the process. Um, if a state agency kind of wants to be a program coordinator, that is totally doable. Uh, Utah is actually um, a partner of ours, um, they're merging different departments right now. Their contact information is on our website as well. Uh, so they kind of handle everything on their end for our Utah folks and participants, but they do report to our office. We work very closely with them. Um, but other individuals, if it's just an individual interest in bringing it to their agency or their community, we have no problem with doing that. Um, and if they want to work towards um, a continuing education approval, we would work with them and actually do that on their behalf. Um, that way everything is uh, synchronous across the states. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I'm just going to pull uh, Dr. Miller back in. And uh, Dr. Miller, anything that we missed that you wanted to add? Um, well, I just wanted to reiterate um, that, you know, our registry allows us to investigate the impact of Alzheimer's at the population level, and it highlights the significant and multifaceted impact of Alzheimer's disease in, within our state. Um, it provides a clearer picture of the types of dementia, where the cases are occurring, and in which populations the disease is most prevalent uh, throughout the community. So having current, correct, and comprehensive data is truly the key to understanding Alzheimer's disease. And it provides uh, robust insight for planning for all of those impacted by the disease. 
So um, we would really like to see more states create registries. Um, I think having additional population-based data uh, can help us have a better idea of how Alzheimer's is impacting us at the national level, and it'll help determine um, areas that are in the greatest need. So if, you know, there's any states out there, any individuals that have contacts that um, are interested in creating their state registry, feel free to reach out um, to us. And, uh, you know, we can discuss and, and we can tell you our story and see if we can assist you uh, within your state. Wonderful. Well, thank you, ladies, so much for joining us. Again, you can um, go to the uh, Alzheimer's Speaks uh, radio page and or the blog and get their email, their website, a direct link to Dementia Dialogues and also to the Alzheimer's Disease Registry. And feel free to, to reach out and uh, get more information or sign up for the Dementia Dialogues. It sounds like a, just a wonderful, wonderful free resource for people, and it would be um, a waste for people not to take advantage of that, especially when you can do it, you know, at your leisure. Um, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so, again, thank you for all the work that you're doing and um, taking time to share with us uh, with that, with all of your information here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio today. In wrapping up, I'm just going to um, let people know if you're looking for additional resources, you can always go to alzheimerspeaks.com. We have lots of information there, um, as well as all of our shows on the radio here are I archive, so you can go back till I think we started in 2011 doing this. There's lots of great information and uh, wonderful shows to listen to uh, that will give you, um, I think, great comfort and calm in terms of how many different things are out there to assist you when dealing with dementia. Again, another great resource is a Dementia Map. You can go there by just going to DementiaMap.com. Until next week, we will talk soon. Thanks again, ladies. Appreciate your time today. Bye now. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Laurie. Yep, bye-bye.